Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I am your host, Ian Fisher. We're really excited about the show that we've got lined up for you today. And I don't want to waste any time in introducing our first guest. Uh, We have with us, those of you who are watching on video can see uh, George Philip Lebourdet. GP, I've I've always just called you GP. I don't even know if I got your last name. You did it so perfectly. All right. Wonderful. GP is uh, really uh, affirm, affirmational and positive, and so I, I, he, he always helps me to feel good about everything, including how I pronounced his last name. Uh, he's also the head of partnerships for an organization called Polygen. So we're going to talk a little bit later about Polygens and the work that they do to support students' research projects. But GP, I want to just jump into a conversation about research because it is a word that a lot of high school students we talk to are kicking around all the time, whether it's something they're looking for out of their undergraduate experience, whether it's something they feel they need to do as a part of their high school experience, research, research, research. And I think that sometimes we don't even pause to define what that is. So in your experience as uh, an undergraduate, also in earning a PhD, uh, how have you come to understand what research is? Ian, uh, it's a great way to kick off the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, This is a topic that when I was in high school, I didn't think too actively about, but the way that I describe my high school experience growing up in a small town in Maine was I was very curious about a lot of things. And um, rather than being a good planner or a good good at time management, for example, mm-hmm. I really just followed my interests. And um, I think that um, that's a great place to start. But one of the other great values of research is that it really does help you to develop those other skills around your interests that allow you to plan, that allow you to um, pursue things in a systematic way. Yeah. And I think that if we take a step back to your question about what actually is research in the broadest terms, that's how I would define it. It's, it's a systematic investigation of a topic that leads to new discoveries, whether it be for you or whether it be for a specific field or, you know, humanity at large, so to speak. Um, I, I, I just, I'm, I love that idea of new discoveries. I think the initial instinct that I have is, okay, we're, we're contributing something to the body of human understanding, but I love that you have defined that language as also being a discovery that could occur for an individual. I've, I've now learned something that others know, but through the research process have come to understand it for myself and thus have a deeper understanding, which I think goes to ideas around basic research. You're looking at things that other people have historically explored, but it's that process that often can be really rich and rewarding uh, for students. So absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there sometimes there can be an apprehension for students who are just getting into it that feel that what could they do if they're just jumping into the research pool to discover mm-hmm. something that's actually new that could move the needle in terms of cancer biology or um, discovering a new dinosaur bone or something like that. Yeah. And the the thing that I take away is that like everything else that you do in high school, there's so much that's important to learn the processes in so that when you get to those next levels in college and after college, after graduate school, you can apply those skills that you've learned and actually lead to those little, those little amazing moments where you discover something that's entirely new for, again, the sum total of your field or, or, or of humanity at large. So another analogy that I like to use, because in my own research, I was really interested in sort of how things move across space. And so um, I you know, I worked a lot with uh, friends in cultural geography and people who uh, who actively make maps, cartographers, to cool. think about research as mapping uncharted intellectual space through repeatable steps. And if you think back to all of those old, hmm. you know, middle um, 
uh, middle 15th, 16th century maps where things were very ill-defined and there was literally terra incognita, unknown yeah. land written there. Right. Research is sort of filling in those unknown lands with your own discoveries, information that you can then pass down to future researchers as well. I, the map analogy is interesting. You know, I was at the uh, Library of Congress just a couple of weeks ago um, with my daughter, and we were looking at some early maps from the late 1800s. Mm. And um, there, they had a world map there. And Europe looked very much like it does on our present day maps. But the rest of the world had these shapes that you could, you know, tell was kind of North America, and maybe that's Africa there, but definitely needed more detail and more exploration. Yes. And so when you look at something like a map, it's great because you can get the rough idea with the first pass, but then every time you go back to that space, you have an opportunity to learn something more deeply to offer greater clarification. And so I like that map analogy because there is kind of this knowable sphere and the things that we know as humanity can expand by virtue of the research that we do. Um, you mentioned your research. Now you're you have a PhD, um, so you've done plenty of it. Um, what did you do your research in to to earn your PhD, and and maybe an early research that you did um, even as an undergraduate that kind of pushed you in that direction? Yeah, this is a great question. I love talking about it. Research has opened so many doors to me, mm -hmm. and beyond that, it has been the source of many great adventures. So I think that that. Uh, that sort of cartographic comparison of, of mapping new space really holds true for me specifically. But I can bring you all the way back to my time in high school. And I remember on one day sort of sitting, I was a little sick that day. So I remember sort of my head in my hand, listening to my um, history teacher, um, Charlie Hudson, talk about um, the pyramids in Egypt. And I just okay. remember thinking, man, this is for an AP world history class. And I just remember thinking, you know, I, what the thing that I love about this subject is that I am learning so much about everything to do with this culture and society. I'm learning about not only how they made these buildings, but I'm learning about why they made the buildings and what languages were inscribed on the buildings and how we interpret the buildings, you know, centuries later. Mm -hmm. And so I was really drawn to this idea of art and architecture as being sort of a lens through which I could explore a lot of different things. Yeah. That's what led me to study art and art history and architecture at Middlebury College for my undergrad degree. And I really explored a lot of different subjects. Again, through my love of uh, exploration, I learned a lot of languages and so studied abroad in Florence and in Paris and really spent a lot of time thinking about architecture there and wrote an undergrad um, thesis on really the intersection between um, it was on uh, a, an Italian painter named Carlo Carrà, who was very interested in mathematical representation, representations of space and time in mm -hmm. the early 20th century. So there are great connections with not only political discourse and the revolutions of the early 20th century, but also with mathematicians and physicists who are trying to sort of set down some sort of interpretive models for how the world and time worked that the general public could understand. So it was through that interest in um, studying, you know, really world history through languages and culture and the art and architecture that they left behind um, that I uh, did a master's um, also in art history at Williams College. They have a very small master's program. Okay. And I focused there on, essentially it was um, photographic surveys of the Alps in the mid 19th century. The reason this was really interesting to me is that this was still uncharted space because when people went up historically to the top of places like Mont Blanc, they suffered from altitude sickness. And so yes. there were all of these travel logs with strange distortions of what people saw. They still believe that glaciers were inhabited by demons that needed to be exercised or that dragons lived up at these high altitudes. And so I saw photography and you know, photography is sometimes taken to be inconvertible truth in um, over-determined ways. It's really, it's still very subjective. And as we all well know, Photoshop can change our perspective of things pretty drastically. Okay. They, they had 19th century versions of Photoshop that they, that they also used. Huh. But I was thinking of these pictures as a way of sort of marking space in a way, in a, in a more truthful way or a more transparent way than people mm -hmm. had previously experienced. 
And that was really, um, you know, an amazing uh, process of research for me that brought me into old travel logs from 19th century physicians and artists. And that actually brought me to uh, Switzerland on a, on a Fulbright research grant where I worked at universities to sort of pour through their archives and think about these materials, not just from a researcher's perspective, but from a public perspective as well. So we created this public facing database as part of a consortium um, through a number of universities. I was working at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And um, just to make this research available for other people so they too could explore what these people had written back in the 19th century and look at pictures or engravings, read their writing and so forth. So I took that experience and then applied it to a lot of the work that I did at Stanford. Um, and my dissertation there was focused on the first photographic survey of the Arctic, which was from 1869, financed by uh, the head of the New York Stock Exchange and led by not a scientist, but by an artist who was mm -hmm. uh, really a failed businessman originally. Um, and he was from uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts, was, which in many ways was sort of the central hub of the whaling industry and so of a lot of global capital. And um, that led me um, personally on a tall ship into the Arctic Circle to do sort of in-person research around these landscapes that have changed so much over the course of um, the time when they were initially photographed until now. So you started with the pyramids and you just basically went north. Um, That's it. That's it. <laughs> until until so, you reach the top of the globe. Some I, what more I, intelligent people would go to the Caribbean, but yes, the Arctic is what. Uh, let's just keep seeing what's what's you know further further north. Um, I it's it's really interesting. I think because um, the specificity um, of the projects that you're exploring, right? A particular artist in the early 20th century, a particular set of photographs from a particular mountain. Uh, in in Switzerland, right? Looking at the Arctic Circle, like these are questions that are very very detailed, and I think a lot of students worry that if they're going to get involved in research, they don't have that level of specificity, right? They would say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm interested in cancer research, or I'm interested in learning more about Bolivia, or and and they have these big big open ended questions, but I think that how do you help students to not feel intimidated by the degree of detail in a research program like what you explored and to feel like there's opportunity in something that's much broader and open-ended like what looking at Bolivia? Ian, this, this is such a great question. And I, I, I recognize that this is I don't know that I would have had a good answer in high school as to what I would have wanted to jump into. And, and that's important for people to acknowledge, right? Like you weren't like, yes. oh, someday I'm going to be looking at the Arctic Circle. That exactly. That was a part of a series of events that brought you to that space. Yes. And I think that the reason that I ended up there is that I was sort of, I made myself open to that process of exploration that research entails. I think what's really challenging is that we want in many ways now, and students today are so in many ways, organized and uh, intentional about where they want to study, what they want to do afterwards in a way that, you know, maybe some other people weren't that I, I was not when I first started um, this journey. I was not, yeah. Yes. And <laughs> so that can be, that has a virtue because when you plan, you at least have something to go by and then you can deviate if you wish. But it also means that um, those opportunities or really those, you know, those signs in the road where you have to say, I'm, I'm going left or I'm going right. Um, it can be really intimidating to, to say, oh, I'm going to study Bolivia rather than Ecuador. And what does that mean about, will I ever, ever, ever be able to go back to Ecuador or will I always be stuck in Bolivia? Yeah. And at one of our symposia at Polygence, we had um, Dr. Margot Gerritsen, who's a professor of um, engineering at Stanford and really a great advocate for um, all women in, in technical fields, specifically in data science. And she showed us what her career path was that brought her to teaching at Stanford. Mm -hmm. This was not something she ever dreamed of or planned. Instead mm -hmm. of a straight line on a graph leading to one location, she basically drew a squiggly line with lots of recursive circles yeah. and switchbacks and said, this is the reason that I'm here is because I said yes to these other opportunities that did not follow a linear path to bring me to Stanford. And that's what I would pay forward to students too. If you have something like Bolivia that you, you say, I just want, I don't know, I want to learn more about it. 
um, begin that process, dive into it. There's going to be a lot of stuff. Another analogy I like to use uh, having taught film classes is there's going to be a lot on the cutting room floor. You're going to have to slash away all of those things that, you know, maybe take you days or weeks or sometimes even months that lead to a dead end or don't lead you where you thought you were going to go. And you have to understand how to take that experience with you, pivot or reorient yourself, and then continue on with the knowledge that you've gained. So very often that time, um, those papers that we write and, and don't get published or those um, research trips that we take to the library that just produce a stack of notes that don't even make it into the papers, um, that can be frustrating, but I want students to know that that's a big important part of the process, um, going well. through those repetitions yeah. um, and being okay with um, turning around or walking away. That's also really important. One of the frustrating things that I think sometimes I hear, and it's just, I, sometimes it's just a mismatch in terms of lingo, but you know, you'll hear students that say, I want to develop my spike, or I want to have the mm-hmm. thing that's going to stand out in my application. And for me, that process is more about chiseling down, chiseling away to identify what it is. And I think a lot of students conceive of it as building up from the ground that I'm going to identify what it is that I'm interested in. And then I'm going to build that thing. When in fact, there's a lot more of, you know, these instances of failure where you go and you do a bunch of research and it doesn't prove any, any fruits for you, but, but you're willing to keep exploring because you've got that sense of curiosity. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about polygens, um, that little, you know, you've got a circle up in the corner there that, uh, for those who are interested in how you would spell that and it's at polygents.org, um, which is a great organization that you've been with for uh, like two and a half years now? Is About that actually only one and a half. Only one and a half years. I was, I was actually working as a mentor, working with students directly before then, but I've been a part of this core team in my current role for about a year and a half now. Fantastic. And and so, so Polygents is this great organization that essentially matches students with curiosity, uh, with mentors who are expert researchers in the field and can help students to find a project that they want to work on, a project that they want to develop. Um, what have you most enjoyed about, you know, watching those matches happen with students, uh, at Polygens? Yeah. Um, I, this is a question I love to answer because students, I think, who are willing to follow their curiosity and creativity, perhaps in unconventional ways, um, you know, to your point about creating that spike, if, if a student is interested in something very specific and esoteric, then those kinds of experiences stand out when admissions readers are going through your applications. But I think more importantly, they actually introduce a student to something that's really meaningful and rewarding for them. And uh, certainly those experiences can happen in school classes, but very often what I see is those classes that you take in school are sort of like that first jump into the research pool. It's the first jump into human biology. And then you start to realize, I just spoke with a student yesterday who, was a little timid at first in our conversation, but by and by, as I asked her why she was interested in human bio and then in cancer biology and then in uh, oncology in particular, it was because she had um, you know, found to be fascinating how genes basically, um, they produce uh, inaccurate signals. Hmm. And that leads to the formation of cancer cells in different, you know, in different manifestations in different parts of the body. But her question was really, why do these, why is there, why are those transcription errors? Why do those errors occur? And how can we begin to prevent them? And that based even on a broad intuition um, and her understanding of human bio was pretty rudimentary, I would say, after having just taken one class, she had through her own curiosity sort of whittled down in our conversation to a question that is at the core of what so many oncologists and cancer biologists are researching right now in their respective uh, fields. So um, when I see students who are able to take that big idea and put aside the intimidation of being able to you know, make a contribution to science or something like that, and they actually just follow their curiosity, um, more often than not, that leads them to exactly where they need to go, which is asking specific questions where a specific person can really help them um, get into the field and understand not only uh, how to answer those questions, but then what questions to ask next to continue that journey. 
So a couple of good examples that are uh, really creative, I think, are sure. one student we had um, was interested in neuroscience, which is a very popular field, as you might imagine. Certainly is. Um, yeah. Many students are interested in things that are sort of related to psychology. Some are interested more in things like neurodegeneration. So there are many different ways of attacking it. And he didn't really know which way to go. But through our conversation, we learned that his little brother had been consistently asking, why do I feel full? I want to keep eating, but my tummy won't let me. What's up with that? And mm -hmm. so the student was able to basically take this really innocent question from his little brother and understand that this is a neuroscience issue. This is a question of feedback between the gut and the brain that sends signals to you that says, you don't need to eat anymore. Your, your stomach is full. You've reached this moment of, of satiation. Yeah. And so he, working with one of my colleagues who was um, a chemist, uh, wrote, he wrote and authored and, and, and uh, drew an original children's book called The Adventures of Brandon and Gigabit, all about this process of feedback that goes into making you feel full. And so I think that's another great example of something that is asking a question. It's not, you know, it is not reinventing the wheel. It's not no. sort of the next, uh, it's not the next MacArthur winning cancer development or whatever you, but it is a great example of that student's own interest and then their own curiosity, their, their unique and authentic um, uh, creativity that they've, they've created this book um, to show. So uh, that, that's just an example that I love. It's a great one. And I think authenticity is something we talk about on the show all the time. So listeners will be <clears throat> familiar with that term. And it's great to hear it come through in the research process as well. Folks, if you are interested in learning more about polygens or you've got a student who's got some curiosity they'd like to explore, uh, GP, should they just go to polygents.org and, and look into uh, the program through the website? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. We're going to continue to send some students your way as long as they've got that, that little kernel of curiosity. And we really appreciate the ongoing support that, that uh, your entire organization has shown uh, the students at College Coach. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your continued work. Really appreciate it. Really my pleasure, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, uh, folks, when we come back, we are going to talk to uh, one of our client services staff about hiring an independent counselor and, and whether that's a good idea or not. I think she's probably going to say yes. We'll be right back. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we have... Molly, is this your first time on the show? Have, have you is. been on the show before? Okay, My great. First time. I, sorry, I, I need to introduce you before I can start talking to you, but... We've got our uh, director of client services, Molly O'Connor, joining us on the show. Longtime listener, first time guest. Um, Molly, how long have you been with us at College Coach? So, I, yes, I'm a huge fan, Ian. I'm a longtime <laughs> listener. I really am. I listen to almost every single episode. I learn something new every week. Um, I've been with College Coach for five years. Five years. Has it been that long already? Because I did some admissions work. So my right. background is in admissions and sales and marketing. So I did a bit of admissions work first, and now I am in a client services role. 
Right. So you are one of the people that has uh, conversations with families that want to know how they can work with me or preferably someone, not me. They'd, they'd rather you know pick another educator. Um, and so you get all kinds of questions from parents who are going through this process and thinking about, do I need outside support from an expert in this space? What do you see, especially right now, um, is the most common concern or source of anxiety or worry that you're getting from families that lead them to set up an initial call with you? Yeah, good question. I, Like you said, we get inquiries from families all around the country, coming from private schools, public schools, homeschooled, you know, different yeah. situations and at different points in the process, right? So ninth graders, 10th graders, 11th graders, so the questions can, can differ pretty greatly um, depending on where they are in the process. So I think right now for, this, for the rising seniors, those students that will be applying this cycle, right. the biggest questions, you know, a lot of the things are already have been set in stone. What's done has been done, their coursework, their extracurriculars. So now it's, do I have the right college list or I haven't even started? Where do I begin? And I think the looming essays, the essays are the big topic right now for the rising seniors. Where do I begin? What do I write about? Um, So families are looking for guidance there. For the younger students, maybe parents and families, ninth grade, 10th grade, it's, are we doing the right things? You know, what should we be thinking about right now with summer planning and courses and, you know, more of that high school planning, those, those components. That maps pretty well onto the conversations I have in my first meetings with ninth and 10th graders. And and of course, those 11th graders where they're like, oh, we need some help writing essays. And I have to tell them, not yet, soon, but, you know, we'll we'll help out when we get there. Um, When you have these conversations with families, um, are there situations where you can say, this person really needs this additional support? because of some cue that you're, you're hearing from them um, that says, you know what, you're, you're really going to want to work with us or, or another outfit like us that, that might have a, a good counselor match. What are you hearing um, in terms of those cues? Yeah, there can be so many there too, because I think there are lots of different parts of this process. We can add so much value. You know, I think one is for a family who maybe this is their first child. This is their first time going through the process. There may be a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah. You know, they may be telling me, oh, here's what we are hearing we should be doing. And I know from my own admissions background, no, you know, like you hear those things right away. Yeah. Let's help you really cut through a lot of that chatter mm-hmm. and hone in on your own process and what you should be doing. Um, so I think those families where that they don't know much about what's coming down the pipeline and where we can add a lot of value there with education. Um, For other students and families, it may be they do have a sense. They actually have spent so much time researching and they really know what to expect, but they may be aiming for really highly selective programs, in which case there may be some real strategic decisions they may want to make along the way Mm -hmm. that we know because we've been on the other side of the desk, but they may not know that. You know, so I think there can be a lot of those varying situations where we can add a lot of value. Yeah. So adding value is what you started with. It's what you finished with on that response. And I think that one of the things that people will always ask is, you know, this is, this is not a cheap exercise either. Um, this can be costly value though, refers to some benefit that you get as a result of it. Um, how do you talk about that relationship between the cost of an independent counselor? You always talk about our team, of course, and what you're benefiting from in terms of that investment. Yeah. And we actually ask our families at the end of the process, after they are finished working with us, like what aspects have you found the most valuable? And we ask students separately and ask parents separately. And, you know, I I went back and looked at this past year and it was the same thing. The number one thing where families found the most value was in the essay support. So I think that probably encompasses content, but also the editing and probably the organizational support making it really manageable and breaking it into smaller pieces. Um, But some of the other things were helping with that list. Maybe students want to 
target scholarships, in which case there could be a real like financial value there. For others, it's maybe we really help them stretch and put their best work for a REACH school that they were admitted to. Um, in other aspects that families found really, really valuable was the stress reduction. Yeah. Relationship, you know, being able to, to have a nice home environment in those really stressful months. Um, and then that, like the strategy, application support and just expert guidance. And it's interesting because I think depending on what a family feels they need, we put more of that forward as experts in that space, right? So I'm working with a new student whose mom is like, I've been through this twice with my daughters. um, And with this student, what I really want is more support on identifying some colleges that are out there because I feel like I don't know what the possibilities are going to be for my youngest, um, totally different set of priorities and preferences. How can we figure out what that's going to look like? And that's very different from a family that comes in and says, help us figure out what courses we should be taking because we don't have a counselor that's having these conversations with us in the school. And we need a little bit more help to understand what colleges are looking for when students are applying, what their application, what their, what their transcripts ought to look like. So it's very interesting. You know, I have to put on different hats in terms of, and everybody's going to get the same kind of content, but you have to put a different kind of foot forward as an educator to meet those needs of the families. Um, Sometimes though, there are families, I don't think they ever get to me, but there are families that don't necessarily need outside help um, that are going to be pretty confident and comfortable on their own. Do you have conversations with families where you're like, you know what, this, this may not be the best fit for you or you you probably don't need this. Um, What do those conversations look like? Um, You know, if they're applying to programs where maybe there's absolutely no holistic review, there's no essay work. Mm -hmm. Yes. We will say, you know, this is pretty much administrative, right? If you're applying to community colleges or maybe some of the Cal States or again, like schools and programs where you don't have that. Um, But to be honest, no, I would say most of my conversations, there are ways we can help. And even if it's a BC student that's not gunning for the most highly selective programs, they may find so much value in the guidance around interest exploration and choosing majors and really, again, kind of helping build the confidence that they're making great choices. So I would say most students and families can benefit from our support in one way or another, Um, but absolutely cognizant that the price point, you know, that that is not going to be realistic for everyone. So we, I think as a team, do such a great job of putting together great resources available for free. You know, we actually have a webinar um, tonight. By the time this airs, it will be available, I think, um, to to view. We'll record that, you know, this blog, uh, this podcast and our blog. So we we put together a lot of great free resources for families as well. Yeah. Our our goal is, um, you know, as, as individuals is of course we want to make a living, but we also, we also want to be in a position where we can reach as many families as possible, which is why we answer these questions on the podcast and want you to help be connected with resources. And if you, even if it doesn't mean working with our team of experts. So we want to make sure that every student's able to put their best foot forward in the application process. Um, one of the things that I think flies a little bit under the radar for our team, um, and you know, we, we always devote a segment of the podcast to our, our finance experts because they're such a big part of, of what we do here. Um, do you often find, or do you ever find that there are situations where a family calls you and it's not really the admissions content where they need the support. It's actually in the financial aid conversations and, and you, you know, you're fortunate to have that as something you can point to as a part of our service. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it is, you know, as they're building the college list, what makes sense for us, what's a great financial fit and we can guide them there and building a, a list that's realistic and fits yeah. their needs. Um, and also sometimes on the, on the back end, after they already have their offers of admission, you know, understanding, Hey, can I negotiate here? Is there anything better, better I can get or help me understand these offers? Um, so yeah, I think, I think about a third of our families leverage our financial support in one way or another. It's actually pretty cool because you'll, you'll sometimes see circumstances where a family will work with our finance team. And, um, after the decisions have come back. And they will use that expertise to negotiate a better financial aid package. And you'll find that that improvement in that aid package actually pays for 
their college coach program and then some, right. So it's like, wow, just yeah. by signing up, I was able to get a better scholarship offer. And, and so that, that makes a difference, I think in, in that context. Huge. Yeah. Um, anything that you would, you know, we just had a, a conversation last week as a part of a team and thinking about how to connect families and especially students with the right educator. We've got so many wonderful experts here, but we're really, really different. Um, you know, uh, my style is going to be quite a bit different from Sally's and that's going to be different from Beth's. And I'm just picking on the three of us because we're the, the host of the radio show. Um, what tips or advice would you give to families as they are trying to identify that educator who's going to be the right person to work with them? Does it make a difference who they work with in the process and, and, you know, why, what, what are the aspects that, that do help support a student's growth? Yeah. I think you have to look at it just like a a teaching environment, you know, in the school, a class environment, it's going to be a great class. If you have a great connection with that teacher and really connect with their style, Mm -hmm. I think similarly, if we can help find a great fit with the educator that you're working with, guiding you through the college process, you're going to have a better experience. You're going to feel a good connection with them. You're going to open up, you're going to brainstorm and, and share your, your, your experience, your life experience and help really craft your best applications. So we definitely are encouraging families to look beyond just the resume. Obviously that experience has to be there. Everyone on our team has worked in admissions, um, but to really look at personality fit, counseling yeah. style, right? Some of those things. And I would say that's one of the most fun aspects of my job is to learn about a student, help think about their wants and needs and make some suggestions on who on the team might be the best match. And, and we just, um, we're growing. And so we've got a, a whole new crop of, of wonderful hires and they're, you're going to love them. I mean, Molly, in terms of like matching them with students, they're, they're just so great and dynamic and interesting. And I think it's really, you know, it reminds me of kind of the hiring process. Um, you know, when you are making a hiring decision for any kind of firm, often the reason that you make the offer is something that's on their resume, but the reason that a person might not be a fit tends to do with culture and personality. And it can sometimes be the same thing here, right? If you choose someone by virtue of what's on their resume, you might not find as great a working relationship as just having that connection in terms of that personality alignment and, and the stylistic overlap. And yeah, we, we try and re- I, I tell students like when they're meeting me for the first time, you have to be comfortable seeing my face and having to listen to me <laughs> in the middle of October when you're stressed right. about essays. Like right. you have to not hate that conversation. Um, and if you're going to hate that, then go, go, go meet with another one of our experts. I think you'll have a better uh, opportunity there. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that I most dislike getting because it's the hardest to answer, um, which is what are the questions that people should be asking you when they call up and are, are, are pursuing a possible independent counselor? We'll finish with that one. Yeah, that's a good one. And I get asked that too. Um, you know, and if there are certain parts of the conversation we miss, I think the, the big one is ask what is their track record? What is their experience? You know, before you work with a counselor, have they been a decision maker? You know, and does my child get a chance to connect with you and see if it is a good fit? I think that is huge, making sure that the student really feels comfortable with that with that match before they get started. Yeah, there's a great example of um, someone that I met with, and then um, they also met with a colleague, and they decided to go with the colleague. And I don't take that person. I think that's fantastic because they're going to have a better match. They're going to have a better experience. Um, so we're always looking for that. And of course, you know, and I know that our expertise is always decision makers in the room. Yeah. Um, so, okay, Molly, when I, when I mentioned that, when I teased this segment, last segment, I was like, we'll see if our director of client services is pro independent counselor or not. Uh, it turns out, yes, you are. Um, 100%. Yeah. So great to have you on the show. Uh, I hope we can have you back again because you have many talents um, and much to offer our audience. Um, Thanks for coming on. Would be my pleasure, Ian. Thanks so much. All right. Fantastic. When we come back, we are going to turn to one of our finance experts and talk a little bit about some LGBTQ plus scholarships since it's Pride Month now. Don't go away. 
When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show, Getting In, a college coach conversation. We are turning now to our finance experts. And we've got uh, Lori Peltier once again, back on the show. Hey, Lori, how you doing? Hi, Ian. I'm doing great. Thanks. Great. Do you request that you only come on the show when I host? It feels like I'm always <laughs> getting you, which is fantastic. Yes. Only you, Ian. Love it. All right. Great. We won't tell Sally and Beth. I don't know if they, <laughs> they listen to the show. They don't have to listen. But so it is end of May, but next month, June is Pride Month, um, starting June 1st all the way to the 30th. And we thought it would be a great opportunity for us to open up our finance conversation for the month in talking a little bit about potential scholarships that might be available for members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and I suppose that, Lori, I must confess, like this isn't something that I necessarily had thought about before, but I, I don't know that there would be a reason that these scholarships wouldn't exist. So what, what is out there for students um, who might identify with that community? Uh, there actually are quite a few scholarships out there. Um, as I started digging around preparing for today, um, I had known about a few, but as I looked, there's more and more, and I think more and more being added every day. Everything from regionally based ones based on the student's state or city that they live in, to national ones for students all across the country. And some I found were even for specific colleges. So if you uh, get this scholarship, you can use it at uh, a choice of three or four colleges that are affiliated with this scholarship. On average, they range from about 2000 to 5000. So they're not gonna cover the full tuition, but it's a good chunk of money. Um, And some of them are based on honoring someone's memory like the Matthew Shepard Scholarship. Mm -hmm. Others were based on um, students going into business. There is a National LGBT Chamber of Commerce. Didn't know about that. And um, so they're looking to expand their economic opportunities for LGBTQ students. Um, There's one for students going into journalism. There's another one for teachers because these organizations have realized that they need representation, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and they want to cover everything. One of the saddest ones that I saw was for students whose parents have cut them off since they've come out so that they have no resources for college and have a lot of financial need. So it really varies what the requirements are, what what the scholarships are for. Yeah, that, that's obviously quite sad. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, my initial thought on this also was was around, you know, first for applying for scholarships. I mean, there are many situations where students in high school may not be out, may not be out to their family, might be in mm-hmm. situations where it could be, you know, financially, personally problematic to come out because their parents would cut them off. What is the sort of the role of parents in terms of applying for these scholarships? Can students do it without um, parents being involved in it in any way? Or is there, you know, some sort of a uh, an adult who needs to be connected to the scholarship process? Uh, That's a good question. I think that a student could do it without their parental involvement. Some of them that are based on financial need, you know, they might need numbers off their FAFSA form. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and even though the, the parent might make a lot of money, but if they're not going to support the student, then it, it kind of doesn't work that way. What I was seeing for essays in regards to these scholarships, um, I, I'm going to read one here that kind of encompasses what I was seeing across the board was how has your LGBTQ plus identity impacted your life at home, school, or in your community? What, if any, challenges have you encountered as a result of these experiences? And how have you chosen to face these challenges? Um, So that that kind of was an underlying theme for the essay requirements. But I think overall, the rest of the information is similar to other scholarship applications, letters of recommendations, GPA, um, you know, maybe their transcript, things like that. Well, you know, you can often find that there are, you know, we've talked on the show before, there are, I think, billions of dollars worth of scholarship money that's out there, and they are attached to all different kinds of identities, interests, areas of curiosity. Um, how how can students find these? I mean, I, you know, I suppose that this is one of those areas that, you know, like applying for a scholarship for your race or ethnicity, cultural background are really core uh, to individuals. Um, unfortunately, it has to be something more of a sensitive subject in some communities and wish it weren't that way. Um, but how do students go about looking for uh, things like this? Do they just use the typical scholarship databases? Do they have to go to some other providers or resources in order to track these down? How did you find all of the content that you've discovered for today? Um, so yes, a, a regular regular national search using like scholarships.com is, is one search engine. There's a couple different uh, viable search engines that are free of charge for students to use that will prompt the students for questions about their identity. Mm-hmm. And they can uh, answer those questions and then these scholarships would come up. Others, you know, you can also look at national organizations like the Point Foundation is a very large organization for this community that has a lot of information on it and resources. PFLAG is another one. It stands for Pride Flag, but the website is just PFLAG, and they have chapters all across the country um, that will sponsor their own scholarships for students in that geographic area. Uh, Live Out Loud is another one, um, and the League Foundation. Um, there's also the Stonewall Community Foundation. So when you start to think about these national organizations that are representing the LGBTQ plus community or advocating for them or advocating for human rights, um, thinking about support groups that the student might belong to, um, different things like that. It's kind of trying to think outside the box and turn over every stone to identify different resources. And what I was finding is once you find one website, there are links on it to other websites and that you kind of go down the rabbit hole, but there is a lot out there that that students can find. Now, you mentioned that for some of these scholarships, you've also found that there are other qualifying factors. Now, you know, of course, if you're going to apply for an LGBTQ plus uh, scholarship, you'll want to identify with that community in some regard uh, or another. Um, Do you find that essays are almost always a part of these uh, scholarships for students to tell their story? From what I've seen, yes, essays are always required. And one thing about you know, qualifying, being a member of this community, you might not be a member of the community, but you'd be a big advocate for it. So mm-hmm. students who are, um, you know, very active on their in their high school for human rights all across the board, you know, they could apply for some of these, you know, it's how are you being an advocate for this community? Now, there are many chapters of the Gay Straight Alliance all, all across high schools um, where this could be a, um, you know, if you've been a member, you've been a president of that, a leader in that space across your high school career, even if you don't identify, um, there may be mm-hmm. some allyship opportunities there. That's a great reminder, Lori. Yes. Um, <clears throat> but you also mentioned that there is potentially the additional expectation around grade point average, you know, potentially scores, are, are there intersecting, you know, criteria here that, you know, you belong to this identity group, but then you also have at least a 3.5, you know, is that common or, or less common? I would say they are either you belong to this community and you have financial need, or you belong to this community and you have a GPA of 3.0 or 3.5 or higher. Okay. 
Gotcha. It kind of goes either way. So typically some intersecting either need or, or merit-based to simplify um, mm-hmm. scholarships here, even though they are not necessarily affiliated with university, they're outside scholarships. But you mentioned that there are some that um, you actually see that are affiliated directly with colleges. Um, what, what are, what are right. some examples there? And, and that was with the, um, the P flag. They have chapters all across the country and within your chapter of your geographic region, you, they could be used at certain scholarships. So they've partnered with different colleges within their area. I see. So, so the idea there is that maybe you've got alumni who are members of that chapter who've contributed to a scholarship mm-hmm. for that particular college, or it's in their local community. And so they want those dollars to go to that university, but right. they're also supporting. Okay. Right. Very interesting. And one other thing in is the scholarships from the college, they might not say that it's specifically for a student from this community, but a college would have scholarships based on leadership, based on community involvement, based on overcoming adversity. And students might qualify that way. And I, I think it's actually a really great reminder because we'll have, there are many circumstances where students will ask questions about whether it's okay to share um, in their main personal mm-hmm. essay about these aspects of their identity. Um, maybe they're uncomfortable sharing it. Maybe they think that it is, I have, sometimes students think it's too obvious, right? Like this is a cliche essay. And I, I, I often want to tell students, look, if this is a really important part of the story that you need to tell them, we got to figure out a way for you to write that essay that tells that story. But I think this is a great reminder that, that students should embrace those aspects of their identity, both with respect to the scholarships and also with the application. Um, I also think it's a great reminder to look for communities where you will be supported and welcomed and have the opportunity to you know, connect not just at the school, but also in the broader community. It sounds like PFLAG is a great way of seeing what that kind of representation looks like. Exactly. Um, are there any other tips that you have for students and families who are in this space that uh, you, you want to make sure that they're aware of? Uh, I would say start looking early. I know I say that every time, as early as <laughs> That's sophomore. the Lori recommendation right there. Yep. <laughs> Um, sophomore year in high school is a good time to start if, yeah. if you feel comfortable. Um, still apply for financial aid because these, you know, although they can be generous, they're not going to cover the whole cost of college. So still plan on need-based aid and scholarships based on other criteria. But but this is a, a great opportunity that you might want to take advantage of. That's right. Don't say no to opportunities to get some money. Um, they're, <laughs> you know, like these are great opportunities. Every little bit helps. Um, and so I think if you're, you know, you've got an hour and you're going to spend that time on TikTok, just take that hour mm-hmm. and go research some of the websites that Lori talked about here today. You might be able to stumble into, you know, $2,000, $5,000 to support your higher education. Um, exactly. Thanks, Lori. That's really great. Um, and it, it's awesome to be reminded that so many scholarships are out there for students. Yes. Uh, All right. That does it. That does it for today's show. We are going to be back again next week to talk about creating the activities list for the Common App. It is time to start putting your application materials together. And then we'll also do an overview of all the different rounds of admission from rolling to early to regular decision and more. Um, We will also talk about securing your financing for the upcoming academic year. So that's a big topic. Obviously, if you're a senior, you might be celebrating the fact that you're heading off to college in the fall, but let's make sure you've got everything you need in order to pay for it. Uh, Until then, we hope you have a wonderful end to May. Congratulations to all of you seniors who are graduating this year. Um, That's a wonderful milestone to have achieved, and I hope you're celebrating with your family. Uh, From Lori and me and all the rest of us at College Coach, have a wonderful weekend uh, over Memorial Day, and we'll, we'll talk. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.